Good morning and welcome to the Reliably Well podcast, a podcast for medical professionals looking for insight into ways to be more effective for their patients and communities by making sure they are caring for themselves first and thriving in their lives. Welcome to the Reliably Well podcast. My name is Sam Peters and I am the host. And today we have Dr. Johnsey and Dr. Lovely here. And we also have a guest, Dr. Blackstock, an addictionologist here in Tupelo. And we're going to be discussing the book, Compassionomics. It's our first book review. And, and to do this, we want to look at the name of the book, Compassionomics. Uh, the authors, Treziak and Mazzarelli, they coined this term. So what do they mean by the term Compassionomics? We also want to talk about the book's central claim. And finally, we're going to talk about what whatever it is they're talking about, is it actually practical in healthcare? So to talk about the name Compassionomics, Treziak and Mazzarelli are, I guess, challenging healthcare and how they have historically separated the science side and the art side. And there's really no overlap. There's no space in between. Or there is a space between. There's no, there's no overlap. On page 32, they say, Early on in med school, physicians in training are taught about the science and the art of medicine. Nurses are trained in a similar fashion. The science of medicine is how to treat the patients. The art of medicine is how to take care of them. So we're separating the art and the science of medicine. Dr. Lovely first, is this how your training went? I think so to some extent. You focus on the science part. There is a compassionate part of our training that does underline everything we do. And I don't think it's spoken loudly enough or focused on enough. But you'll hear attendings say things like, uh, you should thank your patients for the privilege of taking care of them. It's a compassionate act that they're allowing you to give them that, that love and care. Um, and it's a compassionate thing we do. So while it's there, I think it's, uh, you know, the most important things are how high can you get in your class rank? How hard did you study? How many facts do you know? And then somewhere deeper down, if you really dive, that compassionate piece is there. I think there's a whole lot of that. Um, and they, they reference it, that, that alternative curriculum uh, in medicine. And I, I remember distinctly the, um, the admitting uh, internal medicine resident uh, at WashU where I did residency and uh, very early on as an intern uh, one of the one of their seniors came down and he said okay do you understand my role my role is you think the patient needs to go into the hospital and my role is to tell you they don't need to go in the hospital and fight you every step of the way and it wasn't it, it was it was if they let the patient in it was a loss um, sort of thing and it was this this uh, this butting heads and this battle sort of thing that we put on and and the thing we completely left out of the equation it was do they win or do I get to win and we never we never remembered the patient and I think that there's so many things that go on in the in the after we graduate from medical school that we're taught. Uh, not out of a book necessarily, that pushes us away from this idea of the patient and being compassionate and having the the, the art of medicine and, and understanding the bedside manner and those sorts of things that 
that is pushed out. When we sit down and we formally think about things, there are certainly the, a lot more of a clinical um, education. Hey, this is the the pathophysiology of this disease. And then there are certainly some of those instructors and some of those times where we do try and focus on the softer side of medicine, um, that, that artistry uh, of medicine. Uh, but they are, I think, fairly distinct um, approaches, um, and, and the intertwining of those is not there. So you say that the science and the art are separate? I think they are. The approach? I think they are, it, it, again, and I'm, I'm a little farther out than, than, uh, than Blake is, but um, I, I think that that is certainly the way that that was brought up, that there is science of medicine and there is artistry of medicine. And um, you should learn both of them, but how you tie those together is not really as, um, is, is nicely packaged in medicine. So let's, yeah, let's talk about the title of the book. What, and I know that you're pretty passionate about this book. We bought a lot of copies and we hand them out to our fellows. How do the authors reframe uh, the domain of science and the domain of art? Well, I, I think that, again, as, as you talk about this idea of, of compassionomics, the, the very, it is, hey, here's this soft topic and, and here's this, this very hard, um, rigid science out there of, of we've got compassion on one hand and we've got economics on the other hand and let's mash them together, let's force them together. And so they, they do a very um, exhaustive research project here to look at the science of medicine, uh, research the, the journal articles that have been written on empathy and compassion um, and sympathy in medicine, and then distill those titles down and find out what scientific information we can learn from them. And so it is amazing in looking at this. I'll, I'll criticize the authors a little bit. It is, it is so much, here's a fact, here's a fact, here's a fact, as opposed to a nice um, narrative. And there's some other uh, books out there, The Compassionate Clinician uh, and others that maybe make a, a softer, easier read. Um, but these guys really just brought information after information as we've all become accustomed to the slogan of evidence-based medicine that's what they hearken to and say hey i don't want you to believe it because of my experience with it i want you to believe it because the science says it's right and so over and over and over again they bring up these um, settings where someone's compassionate intervention had a tangible outcome on patients, improving their health, when we held all other factors uh, constant between the control group and the research group, and we had an impact on the patient. And so when we can think about that, we don't have to spend a billion dollars to research another medication. We don't have to spend 10 years trying to figure out if this is better than that. All we have to sit there and do is take the same treatment we've been given and delivered in a compassionate way, and we can get 10 or 50 or 100% better results by just adding that compassion. And so I think that that was a great way that they they combined these two um, issues 
and showed the average clinician, hey, this just makes you a better doctor. And how many of us wouldn't take a class or, um, you know, take an extended uh, break to go and study something that makes us a better clinician? And all we have to do here is take some of the data that's already out there and try and put it into the practice that we already do. We don't have to take time out of our schedule. We don't have to spend an exhaustive amount of money. If you come up and ask me, I'll give you a copy of Compassionomics today. You don't have to spend a dime on it. Um, and I think then the the bigger um, you know question about, about mattering, about the importance of it, again, there's a huge impact on our patients. There's a huge impact on our clinicians, and that's the the last quarter of the book they bring out that part of the science which to me from from where i sit with with concerns of burnout in our clinicians and and longevity of careers that that's the that's the part that um really makes me passionate about this book is that it can make our lives our careers in medicine uh so much better uh for us so much more fulfilling and, and protect us uh, from what we know the practice of medicine can do to us. Yeah, let's talk about that n- now for a second. Dr. Lovey, do you have something? Yeah, I'd say I'd have two points off what Joe said. First, um, I think the authors knew their, knew their audience very well. I like the fact-based approach. Um, I know my family gets annoyed when my little brother brings me an article. My question is about that article uh, what was the p-value on the source article and what was the actual methodology to get there? And it's a little frustrating for him, but for me, it's the only way to know that that article has any validity is if you can actually get down to where it is. So I like that they took that fact-based approach. It was what spoke to me more directly. And then secondarily, I agree, everybody wants to be the best clinician they can, but I feel like we define best clinician as antibiotic choice or did you pick the right presser? And we get really mad about our Prescani scores because the patient doesn't know how good a care I provided. When really, that Prescani score is very important in, in telling you how compassionately you interacted with a patient and how much you actually connected with a person. Because no matter how busy it is or how long they waited, that there's a score for you on that Prescani score. And if you had a good interaction with that person, they're going to score you a five if they waited 10 hours and the rest of the time was terrible. And uh, I like having that score there. And since I've read this book and started focusing on um, my own improvement, that's one of my most valuable assets to see how much my personal Prescani score has improved. And I'm talking about that physician-related score. How did your provider do zero to five? I want fives there, and I want it to be because I earned it, because I took the time to be a good person, good interacting clinician, not because I chose the right antibiotic. Yeah, that that seems exactly right, that they know their audience. They know exactly kind of the pushback they're going to get. They need to prove it uh, scientifically, and that's, that's where uh, on the back of the book it even says – does compassion really matter? And that's the thing that they see, uh, seek to prove. Other books will will demonstrate this in a more narrative way, but they just want to show the facts. And even when they are doing the research in the journal articles, there's not been a lot of study on this. No one's really studying compassion. And to even postulate that compassion is relevant medically um, was actually a difficult thing to research. 
I, I think the way they had to get to it, it was difficult to research. But overall, the number of articles that they talk about touching on was amazing to me. Now, they were, they again, they had to, uh, as opposed to doing an automated search for this information, they had to really kind of go through the weeds and, and find an article and then go through the references of that article to get more and more data uh, to prove their point. But I think going back to, to, to Blake's point about choosing the right antibiotic, the right presser, the, the amazing thing is we can choose the right one and have a bad outcome because we didn't interact. Um, uh, Dr. Roberts, who came and spoke with us, that was the thing that was shocking to me was the number of patients that come to the emergency department with an acute condition that leave with PTSD, mm. that we've given them PTSD by the, by the obviously the acuity of their clinical condition, but also because we didn't have the kind of compassion and interaction with them. And it was all based on, on that ED experience. It wasn't what, you know, did they go into cardiogenic shock and wind up in the ICU for six months? What he was talking about was it was, it was based on the ED experience. So you get PTSD not from the accident, but you get it from the... I, th I think it's a combination of okay. the two. I, I have to choose from a pool of people who've had this severe, acute clinical decline and then have them not have the right kind of interaction in the ED. Not a, not a, not a bad clinical, not, not you, you didn't pick up on the fact they were having a STEMI. You did that. You called the cath lab, you did all that sort of stuff, but you had this very dispassionate interaction with that person and that fear and anxiety that was allowed to brew in them for 60 minutes in the ED. It, it was a short period of time. I can't remember his exact number, but that's amazing to me that that lasted, I think he said six months mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. a quarter of those patients. That's, that's, that's shocking to me that we can have that much of a detrimental effect upon our patients. I mean, we think about PTSD. Well, that happens when you're in the in Fallujah or something like that. That shouldn't happen when you're in, you know, Fulton, Mississippi, Tupelo, Mississippi. You know, that 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 should be um, uh, that that's shocking. There are absolutely times where I can see us making it worse. You know, the trauma alert that comes in and we treat you like a car, not a body not a person, we treat you like a body and we're going to examine this body and roll you and check every orifice. And we do a better job with kids trying to explain to them each step of the way what happens. You can watch the nurses and physicians be more compassionate if they have a child there. There's a four-year-old we're going to roll. But if you're a drunk uh, college kid in a car accident, they're on average, we're not as compassionate. And I can absolutely see what we do to you being more traumatic than even the car wreck itself. And that's something to think about that I mean, do, first do no harm is our Hippocratic Oath and what we should be thinking about. And we're absolutely doing harm sometimes when we don't realize it. Good. So, yeah, let's, let's tar start talking about the main argument of this book. In Chapter 3, which is called The Physiological Health Benefits of Compassion, Treziak and Mazzarelli demonstrate that loneliness kills. So, in 1988, Dr. House and others published an article called The Social Relationships and Health. I'm sorry, Social Relationships and Health. And they quote this article saying, social relationships or the lack thereof constitute, 
constitute a major risk factor for health, uh, for health, rivaling the effect of a well-established health risk factor, such as cigarette smoking, blood pressure, blood lipids, obesity, and physical activity. Dr. Johnson, how does this minor argument uh, contribute to the main argument? How, how does loneliness and its physiological effects further their argument in compassion-nomics? Yeah, I, I gotta say, I've always been one of those that like loneliness. What, I, I remember, I think it was 2012 or 2014, the, the British government um, uh, had a new cabinet post called the Minister of Loneliness because loneliness was su- or is such a big issue in Great Britain that they felt like a cab. I mean, can you imagine a secretary uh, level person in our government whose only job is loneliness? That to me was a little bit shocking. But then you read the, 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 the longest running medical study there is. I think it's still going on that, that uh, longevity study out of Harvard and the, the, you want to figure out how to live longer and fuller life. It matters on two things. One, the number of social interactions, deep social interactions that you have, and the quality of those social interactions that you have, those relationships that you have. So it is huge. And how much more important, when we're talking about a health topic, could it be than having a good, healthy relationship with their clinician. I love it when those patients talk about, well, will Dr. Smith see what you've done here? Because it's not because, um, you know, they necessarily doubt what I am saying. It is because they want to make sure Dr. Smith, who has taken care of their mother and now taking care of them for most of their adult life, that they're aware of what's going on. And when I can say, absolutely, Dr. Smith's going to have this, well, now they automatically have more uh, belief and and trust in me because I'm communicating with Dr. Smith about what's going on uh, with them. So I I think it has a a huge um, impact. And uh, so many of these things, you know, the the compliance with with medical therapy, having that relationship, having that understanding, having that confidence that I'm going to see Dr. Smith again and they're going to be unhappy with me if I haven't been compliant, that's a huge part of how this compassionomics works in that patient's life and when they get into talking about the the folks who are dealing with with cancer diagnosis and just that idea of having a connection with both their clinician but even more how many times it was important to have a connection with other folks that were that have dealt with or are dealing with a similar diagnosis and know that you weren't alone made a huge impact in in quality of life in lack of uh, of, of um, recurrence of their malignancy uh, all of those um, key indicators uh, for for those really sick folks it's just amazing and uh, um, exciting I think that such a, an interaction could could be impactful on a person dr. lovely so compassion is, as they show, it can reduce blood pressure, it can promote healing from trauma, reduce pain perception. 
is this surprising? I guess generally I, I thought that the psychosomatic effect that our feelings do have significant import on our physiology or, or um, whatever. Is this surprising? Is this really revolutionary? I want to say yes and no. Uh, yes, it's surprising in that we still don't understand that connection at all. Uh, and no, it's not surprising in that we've seen how strong it is over and over again in so many studies, placebo being the obvious and easiest one to point to, uh, how strongly your mind can affect your outcome, a positive mindset can affect your outcome in the long term. Uh, and this idea of loneliness is uh, very interested in how much longer you can live by having those social connections. We're, we tend to be very hard on ourselves as individuals. Um, and something about the more connections you have, the more responsibility you have to take care of yourself in a meaningful way because you owe it to those other people. Um, you, know, you know, there's one study that I think Jordan Peterson likes to quote about how a person's more likely to give their medicine, their dog their medicine than to take their own medicine because they care more about their dog than themselves. Uh, and the more people that you, almost the more people that you owe, owe something to, you have to maintain yourself at a high level to do what you have to do for your kids and for your friends. I really like that. I didn't think about that connection. But yeah, the more connections we have, the more responsibility we have to, uh, to keep ourselves well so that we can give to them and, and also just by virtue of the fact that we have other friends, that's, that's good. And I, and I think as far as that, that psychosomatic connection, we see it. We see it all the time. If you have that good interaction, that person who comes in so worried about their blood pressure, they checked it and it was up, and you just sit there and have that good conversation about how Okay, I understand. It's not. It's, this is not going to cause you to die right now, you know. And then you check it again at the end of that interaction, and they've dropped twenty points on their blood pressure. And you never gave them one medical therapy that we think of, but we know that works. We know putting that patient at ease will will stabilize vital signs on that that individual. Will reduce pain scores. Will all sorts of things. Having that 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 nice interaction versus if I go in and tell them you're stupid and you're wasting my time by coming in here with your blood pressure, well, I can guarantee you that blood pressure number will go up. Yep. Um, I, I don't need any study to, to prove that. Um, and, and so, I mean, we, we, you're right. It's shocking in a way some of the impact that was there. And, and, and again, I, what I was most uh, pleased with was how detailed these studies that they referenced where they really did take out a lot of the confounders. And, and they really put it on the placebo effect or the or what, what we call the placebo effect, which is a lot of times that compassionate effect uh, of the person who's, who's intervening there and how objectively that made a difference. So it's not the, well, that's a nice thing to be compassionate. It is an, an absolute necessity to be compassionate if we want good outcomes with our patients. And almost beyond just, it's beyond even the soft side of medicine. It almost gets hocus pocusy to an extent where if you come into come into work and the one doctor that was on is in a terrible mood, even if they don't say anything, you feel that energy of that terrible mood. We're in, for whatever reason, everybody else is in a bad mood. Even if they just lock it inside and don't say anything, it still brings the whole place down. 
Um, so you don't have to say anything for to somehow tra- tra- transmit those negative vibes in that way. And I know we don't understand how this stuff works, but we certainly see the effect on the other side. The outcomes, the outcomes suggest that there's something there. So, Dr. Johnson, you, earlier you mentioned that uh, being compassionate can positively affect the clinician in, in burnout and wellness. And I remember talking to someone who I will not mention um, who said, if you're going to try to fight burnout by telling people to be compassionate, that is the worst way to fight burnout be- because if clinicians are already stressed and burn out to tell them to show compassion you know they have nothing else to give and he said this is a this is a horrible way to fight burnout my i guess anticipation for anyone who's listening to this podcast is oh this is all nice we need to be compassionate but you're not there in the hospital with me you're not there in the clinic with me that is a ridiculous thing to ask because we don't have time for this it's not even possible uh so the Dalai Lama said, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. Is it possible? D- Dr. Lovely, do you think that you have enough time to show compassion in healthcare? Absolutely. I take pride, especially in the emergency department. I feel like uh, we talk about social connections. I feel like we're, we are the social safety net. 24 hours a day and you have the opportunity to complain about the homeless person that comes in or the drug addicted person that comes in uh, the people that have that need a social station at society end up in the ER so you have the opportunity to complain about them and say that's not your job or take pride in hey you're a homeless guy and it's three in the morning it's cold outside you want a sandwich box and you can sleep here in this bed until I need it and then I'll have you go out in the waiting room from there and make sure it social work will talk to you in the morning for me personally, that's been one of the strongest motivators. One of the reasons I love emergency medicine is being that social safety net. I love being the guy that can come in and find you a room in the tower next door for free that night. The things that I can offer without having to worry about, it doesn't affect me financially whether you have insurance or not. And I think that's one great thing that medicine's done is that the physician, I don't know if you have insurance and I don't care. I'm not going to treat you differently because of it. And absolutely, I have time to do that. And in fact, the more I do that, the smoother and faster my day goes. If I sit down and have a good, compassionate connection, even with just the average patient that comes in, my treatment plan is better. They understand my treatment plan more clearly. Uh, they have less questions and everything just runs smoother. So yes, absolutely. It makes me faster, not, not slower in any way. And the better I am at doing it, the better my day goes. And honestly, I think you have time for what you make time for, right? Compassion itself is its own reward. I think, like you said, the more you do it, the better you get at it and the more you reward you get from it. I mean, the, you know, giving that homeless guy a sandwich is probably the most rewarding thing. You, you will remember that more so than intubating the, the five guys you did that night or sending a guy to cath lab for STEMI. That, that's something that will stick with you for, for a long time and make you feel better than, than saving the lives you did that night. Absolutely. So I, I, think, I think it's important that, you know, if it's important to you, you'll make time for it. 
The nurses will get mad at me sometimes. They'll come out of a patient's room that's drunk and been really rude to them, and they want me to go in there and be mean to them. And they don't want to come to me because they know I'm not. I'm going to come in there and bring them food and like be super nice. And the nurses, yeah. but it actually brings them up when I come out and that's they right. see how nice I was to that jerk yeah. guy. And they're they act mad about it, but in actuality, they're smiling now, whereas they were mad before. So they like seeing that compassionate act, even toward the people who don't necessarily quote deserve it. And, and I feel like when we're trying to push that, um, that kind of. I'm going to stand on my principles agenda. It's like swimming upstream Mm -hmm. and it just fatigues you so much. And I'm not saying that you give in and the drug addict comes in and you give them four milligrams of Dilaudid because that's what they wanted. That's certainly not what I'm advocating, but I think those simple interactions of, you know, the compassionate touch, the sitting down and smile, those things we think they add to what we're doing. But they really don't. The patient perceives that they've had more time when we sit down in the room. But we haven't spent more time in the room just because we sat down. But if the patient perceives it, if we if we go over the, the discharge plan with them as opposed to having to come back and answer three different questions, we've saved a wealth of time. And so I would argue that it we, we don't have time not to be compassionate, mm-hmm. uh, to use a couple of, uh, to use a double negative in there. We, we absolutely, because of our time constraints, must be compassionate because it, to me, when I have a compassionate interaction, it way shortens the amount of things that I have to do to that patient uh, to convince them that I care. How many, what percentage of the tests that you order do you order because you absolutely need them? It, it's a minority. Five percent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, the, the ones where we really want that diagnostic mm-hmm. test, and so many times we're having to do it because the patient demands it. They expect it. Um, and, and the more I can have that compassion interaction with them, the less of that testing that I wind up doing. And to that point, I think it takes a lot more energy to be angry than it does or upset than it does to be kind. Right? I mean, you spend a lot more time harping or uh, dwelling on a situation if you're angry, upset about it. If you can understand that the patient's sick, and, and show them that compassion, you don't harbor that feeling of hate or, you know, disgust, and you don't carry it with you. I think you can leave it when you leave work. You can leave that there. Um, and so, if, you know, just from an energy standpoint or the effort that you spend, I think it just it's easier to be kind. And from that, and this is a little bit of an aside, you'll be interacting with a patient and you will have made a stance, like I'm not going to admit you or I'm not going to give you this drug for whatever reason, you've made this stance. And I see it, it's easier to see when you come in behind another doctor and you take over and you and you fold. And it's so much easier to just fold. Make sure you can stay in the hospital. And it's so much easier. It's like, why am I forcing myself to make this long, hour-long argument instead of just, just having a conversation? It's okay to fold. It's okay to change. You don't have to stick with that original conviction the whole time because had you started this from zero, it's really not a conviction you needed to hold that strongly to begin with. But then you identify with it, and it's hard to let it go. I've seen it a lot, especially following other doctors. I'm sure I do it all the time myself, too. I guess I'm just going to maybe ask it again for those listeners. Is there ever a time where there really isn't time? to show compassion, and I'll, I guess I'll aim this at Dr. Johnsey. Is there a time in healthcare where you just don't have enough time? I think that we certainly do face some critical interventions uh, on patients that are time sensitive, and we need to get to that point as rapidly as we possibly can. 
but it doesn't mean that we can't do that in a compassionate way. I need to ask, I need to get your consent to give you a clot busting drug for your stroke. It's going to take me a lot longer to do that in a very stern and forceful way than it is, look, I want to do what's best for you, Miss Smith. I want to make you better. And this is something that I think can make you better. And then we go over those rote risks and benefits. That's going to be a much better way than what do you want to do, uh, than just laying the facts out and what do you want to do. But let them know that I know it's scary, that I know that you know a lot has gone on and we still need to move very quickly and what I want is the best thing for you. Uh, I think that that, that is just going to make that process a much they're, they're not having to guess whether I'm on their side or not. They're not having to guess whether I've got some ulterior motive out here to, to move down this treatment pathway. And so, um, it, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's imperative that we find that ability to be compassionate in every interaction because, again, it's going to make that patient better somewhere down the road. Even if we disagree on whether the the, the, the TPA is needed in this patient or not, the fact of whether I have a compassionate interaction, I know has an outcome on that patient. In the end, that's what I want. I want good outcomes for, for my patients. Um, when, when we, the, the other thing, you know, do you have time um, talking about the clinician themselves? There's not one of us that went into medical school and said, I want to make a, I'm going into medicine because I want to make a great income. Now, we may have thought that in somewhere in the back of our head, don't get me wrong, but there's not one of us who didn't say, I want, I want to help people. And this is a way to absolutely help our patients, mm-hmm. is to be compassionate with them. I may get the antibiotic choice wrong. I may get the pressure wrong. I may, I may do a whole host of things wrong. But this one I know how to do. I didn't really actually have to learn this one in medical school or read this book or anything else. Mom taught me this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know how to do these kinds of things uh, and, and, to, and to be compassionate to other human beings when we see them in very difficult situations. That's what I, that's what I like about my job. I'm, I'm taking people in the worst day of their life, even if from my objective view it's not a very bad day for them, but what they perceive as one of the worst days of their lives and I can, I can make that day better. Regardless of how good a physician I am clinically, I can make that day better by the interaction that I have with that patient. And so I think if I came into this business to help patients, and here's a way, I don't have to read a single journal article, I don't have to um, bone up on my CME, I don't have to take a fellowship in something else, but I can make patients better. I, I, I'm all in for this. And you can certainly practice and get better at it. And I'd say you're right. Even in the most time-sensitive chest tube and a gunshot wound, you can lay your arm on their shoulder and say, I got you, buddy, before you put the chest tube in. And it makes a difference, and it doesn't take any extra time. And one other point in do we have time, and probably should have prefaced with this, I do think uh, physicians are overstretched. I do think nurses are overstretched. And I do think we need to fortify the staffing across the hospital. I think healthcare is important. And I think we put tons of money toward healthcare. We need to have enough people there to make it an easier job than it is. I do think it's too hard of a job. And I think we need more people there to make it slower and uh, a slower pace and an easier job. And I think that there's reasons 
clear reasons structurally why it's not that way now. And I do think it will, we will get there in the future. I think we're going in the right direction, but in the meantime, certainly every patient you have time to take care of, you have time to be compassionate during, but you may not be able to get to every patient that checked in that hour. That's good. And that's very refreshing. At the end of our reliably well podcast, we, we normally give a, a practical, uh, uh, a practical tip and I know chapter eight I believe chapter eight it talks about the power of 40 seconds and when we talk about do we have time it really doesn't take even a minute you can show compassion in 40 seconds and I want us to just read some phrases that uh, compassionomics has and these are you know formulas or phrases that you can use and they, uh, they have shown to enhance communication, uh, compassionate communication, and thereby lower anxiety uh, following a consultation. So I'm going to ask Dr. Lovely, and we'll kind of just go in a, in a uh, go around. Would you want to read the first phrase? Yep. Whatever we do and however that develops, we will continue to take good care of you. We will be with you all the way we will do and we will continue to do our very best for you whatever happens we will never abandon you you are not facing this on your own together we will have a careful look at decisions you have to make and we will keep a close eye on your concerns so these are some stock phrases that have been shown to enhance compassion uh, compassionate communication um, so overall, Dr. Johnson, what is your thoughts of the book? Uh, again, I think, um, the, the message of the book is imperative for every clinician to hear and to understand the impact that it can make both for their patients and for their own, their own, uh, psyche and sanity and, and, uh, to, to, to promote, uh, a positive impact on their career. Careers, Dr. Lilly. It helped me align my practice better in a way that makes me happier when I'm on shift. It wasn't something that I was completely unaware of, but it helped shift my perspective enough to where when I'm on shift, I don't I focus more on a aspect that makes my day better uh, and less on the aspects that make my day worse. So it improved my improved my satisfaction as a doctor. Very good. So thank you, Dr. Johnsey, Dr. Lovely, and also Dr. Blackstock, who, who jumped in for a moment. We, uh, so we covered Compassionomics. It's a great read. Please uh, get a copy of it. If you want a copy, we have some here at the Relias office. We want to thank also our listeners. Please subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed this. And if you have any future ideas for the podcast, please reach out to me. Until next time, be well.